Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. All right, today we are talking about John Scalzi's spectacularly interesting, funny, this is our first funny science fiction novel, Red Shirts, and won an award, and it's a spectacular type of humor that you get, that you sometimes get with Philip K. Dick's writing as well. Now, this novel is particularly interesting because it deals with some, or it involves some ideas that are actually on the cutting edge, far edge of science. Meaning it's definitely not mainstream, but that's what science fiction is. The science fiction is stuff that's not mainstream, that might be possible, that might be wacky. But the basic idea is that with this novel, we have two universes, or two timelines, two worlds. And you have a past that coexists simultaneously with the present. Meaning, the past and the present both exist, and they're still both going on. And when you time travel, as they do in the book, going from one future to the past, you actually end up in a different past because that past will not result in the future that you came from because you're changing the past. Does everyone get it? So that means that there's multiple realities that exist all at once. Now, one of the reasons I think that John Scalzi made this a funny novel filled with outrageous lines that are really cool is because part of this time travel type of stuff seems so far out that you might as well make it sort of tongue-in-cheek. But the reality is that the ideas that he's presenting are actually talked about in some realms within physics. Now, what we have in the basic novel is there's a spaceship called the Intrepid that's out there. And it has away missions. Just like in the movie, or in the TV series, Star Trek. But in these away missions, the main guys always survive. One gets beaten up pretty badly almost every single time, but one, yeah, the rest of the guys survive, and somebody or a bunch of people get killed off, usually the lower-ranking people. And what some of the members of the crew have figured out is that the way the people are acting and the way that they are others are being killed off, resembles, especially the crisis, resembles a TV show, like an old Star Trek TV show. But this one's not starring this, the Enterprise. This one's starring the Intrepid. So they look at their past and they say, this is really just like a TV show. But it's we have no past where there's an Intrepid. So it's like our, our, our present is being manipulated by some type of connection with a TV show. Go ahead. Oh, by some type of connection with a TV show. Some type of alternate reality involving a TV show is affecting ours. You have a bleed-in from one reality to another. And when somebody dies in the TV show, we die over here. Now, 
the basic idea is they then say, well, we have to investigate this based simply on the idea that it is, the reality resembles so much a TV show. They say there must be a past in some alternate timeline in which such a reality exists, where there is a show on the intrepid. And that show on the intrepid is what's causing them to die off. And they do it through a statistical analysis of some guy called Jenkins who hides out in the, in the, in the tubes of the spaceship and so on. All right. So how could this actually be? Is this something that's so far-fetched that you just... Like with all of the other science fiction novels that we've done so far, there's always a level and element of seriousness to it. So if you look at Ursula Le Guin's novels, or if you look at Isaac Asimov's novels, you always find something that's potentially real. They're actually trying to present a serious story where drama occurs, and on some level they're trying to present a version of reality that may eventually occur in the real world. They're prophetic. That's what science fiction is. It's prophetic. So this thing, could this be, is it just a joke novel? Or could it have an element of prophecy in it? Could it have an element of reality in it? So what I want to show you today is some of the discussion in the novel and relate it to some of these discussions that have been going on in physics, that this type of thing actually could happen. It sounds really weird, but we're just going to talk about it. Now, we're not saying it's true, but we are saying that serious physicists, serious scientists do talk about it. They wonder about it. These things do happen, not necessarily in the mainstream, and you definitely won't get it in a college class, but when physicists are by themselves, they sometimes ask these questions. And there's a certain percentage of physicists now that are asking these percentages, mostly young physicists, who are asking these questions really seriously right now. Okay. So let's talk about this idea of there being other realities that we don't see. Now, the other realities, when we think of them, are like other timelines. So physicists traditionally have rejected the idea of there being other versions of us. You wore a blue shirt in today. Hey, there's another version of us where it was a yellow shirt. Everything else is the same. Okay? There's other classes, other versions of us where you didn't take the class. Somebody else is sitting in that seat. Okay? You took a math class instead. Does it make sense? So some versions are very similar, some variants are very, very some versions are very far apart. Now physicists have always said that's impossible because the energy required to create these multiple universes is so huge. They, they bump into each other. That was always the traditional argument. Too much energy would be consumed to create all that mass. E equals mc squared. So you're talking about a lot of energy to produce all that mass, and it's impossible. That was always traditional. And, in fact, if you talk to most mainstream physicists, that is the argument that they'd still give you today. But there's a large proportion, like around 18%, of younger physicists who are saying, that's wrong, that's just not there. And they're literally younger, and the older ones are getting older and getting ready to retire, and they'll eventually be replaced. But this all goes back to a physicist who was studying under John Wheeler in quantum mechanics at Princeton University and got his dissertation finished in 1957, and his name was Hugh Everett. And what they had was they had an experiment that nobody could figure out. To this day, 
the best of physicists scratch their heads and say they don't they don't understand it. Don't worry about this. How do I do this? Huh. One button did it. Okay. All right. So to this day, they have physicists that actually uh, say, you know, it is simply unexplainable. And it's called the two-slit experiment. Now, let me tell you what this two-slit experiment is. I'm going to draw something on the board, and I want everybody to watch it. In fact, I think I'm going to draw it on this board, Jack. You're going to have to turn around, but that way everybody else doesn't have to turn. If I do it on this board, everybody, half the class has to turn around. But if I do it on this one, we're okay. All right. The two-slit two experiment works like this. You have a light source over here, okay? In reality, they usually use a laser. It's a monochromatic, often a red light source, okay? So I have the rays sort of going out in all directions. The reality is they usually use a laser that's pointed directly here. And it goes through what they call an aperture here. So the light is off to the left, and this monochromatic light source, and this is not being drawn to scale. These things that I'm showing you, these little gaps are like smaller than a human hair, the width of a human hair. So we're, these are not being drawn to scale. So what you have is light coming through here and going through this aperture over here, getting into what we call the system on the right. And then over here, you have a barrier with two slits in it. Two small slits. Everyone okay with that? And over here, we're just going to call this a photographic detection plate. Now let's just think of a very sensitive light surface that can pick up small amounts of light. Now, when they send a lot of light through the aperture, you have a lot of photons in the middle here. Does everyone get it? Everyone study this. Max, look up here. You have a lot of photons in the system. And when you have a lot of photons in the system, you have to understand, as far as physicists are concerned, all things are existing as waves. And what you have in this universe, we have a frequency-based universe in which there are waves. And the waves interact with one another through two principles, and there's only two. And that's called constructive interference and destructive interference. Now, constructive interference is when a wave comes along and you've got a peak, like the surfer trying to get the, catch the peak of the wave, and you have another wave coming along that hits it at the peak. Now, one peak hits the other peak, and they sum together, and you get a big wave. All right? What happens, however, if you get the peak of one wave coming in and hitting the trough or the bottom of the other wave. Well, one's trying to go up and the other one's trying to go down. What happens? They cancel each other out. So you get nothing. In fact, they have actually designed mufflers for cars. The ones that you have on your car are cheaper to make, so they use those. But they actually have mufflers that are electronic that actually have speakers in them. And every time there's a boom coming out of the tailpipe, they produce an, another boom from the speakers that has exactly the opposite wave characteristics. So whenever you get a, a high peak from the boom from the engine, they produce a trough. And whenever you get a, 
the speakers produce the trough, and whenever you get a trough from the engine, you get a peak from the from the uh, from the speakers, and what you get is no sound whatsoever coming out of it. But it's electronic and so on like that. So you see, they cancel each other out. So when you have them canceling each other out, you get destructive interference. It wipes them clean. When you get them hitting each other like the peaks and the troughs match, you get constructive interference and they become bigger, they sum up. Now you can actually see what happens when you go to a piano and you hit a middle C, boom, and then hit a B right next to the middle C, boom, and so what will happen is you'll get a wah, 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 you'll get what they call a beat frequency. And a beat frequency is the frequencies are so close together, but they interact so that sometimes the peaks hit the, uh, hit the troughs of the other one, and when the peak and the trough hits, 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 when the peak and the trough hit, they cancel each other out, and then when the peaks and the peaks hit, they amplify together. So you get a, a beat frequency that's occasionally canceling itself out, and then bursting to life again. Now what do you have when you have these frequencies combining, a bunch of them, you get through these processes of destructive and constructive interference, you get what's called a wave packet. Now what a wave packet is, it looks like this. It's a blip in reality, in our time-space universe, in space-time. And what you get is a blip, and what's happening is there's waves, it has its own wave characteristic, but this wave here, this blip, is actually composed of zillions of other waves, other small waves that are like sine waves. But when they combine together, they produce this blip. Now the photon is inside that wave packet. Now this is the big debate that physicists have been working around for over 100 years. The photons exist as a wave, and they say they have a wave and particle characteristics. But then they say that according to one interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is the so-called Copenhagen interpretation, that a real photon, a single one, will boom, emerge from that wave packet when you look for it. As John Wheeler said, another physicist, he said, nothing actually really exists at the quantum level unless it's registered in some way, measured in some way, seen in some way. Now, other physicists, such as Einstein, used to mock his quantum mechanical colleagues by saying, do you really think that the moon wouldn't be there if I didn't look at it? Well, when we now understand that registration, or just observing, can actually be a very complicated thing. And it can involve sort of groups of people, but also machines and all types of things. It's very complicated to talk about it. But the point is, the basic idea was that something doesn't distill out of reality unless and, and pop out from being a wave to a real physical thing unless it's registered in some way. So what was always confusing to physicists, especially young physicists who had you know, looked at quantum mechanics, they said, but look, we're all coming out of quantum mechanical stuff. We're all made up of particles. And so, like, are we real or are we not real? That was always the big question. Are we real or are we not real? And so, the point is, 
the Copenhagen interpretation is essentially saying that a single version of a real photon pops out of this wave of this wave packet when you sort of look for it. And that's the end of it. One version and only one version pops out, and you're done. All the other potential photons don't happen. Only the one happens, because we have only one reality in front of us. So there's a bit of religion associated with this, because they believed there would be only one religion, one, one reality that popped out of it. Then come along Hugh Everett, and he said, you know, mathematically, this, there's no justification for that particular interpretation. You can have all of those potential photons all appearing, and they could be perfectly fine, but they just wouldn't they wouldn't appear because they would not be in sync with the reality that you are. Meaning, that wave packet that actually has um, that has the particle come out of it, it has a what they call a wave function. That that photon has a wave function, meaning it has an equation, and that equation defines what that photon is. But if you change something in the equation, you necessarily get a different photon. Now, this is going to be something that's really sort of puzzling, but... Oh, I put all my coins somewhere else. Okay, let's say I had a, a coin, a quarter in this hand. Well, this quarter is made up of molecules, inside those atoms, and inside those subatomic particles. And it has an equation. It has a wave function equation. Literally, an equation. And, and, and both space and time are specified in that equation. It's a complicated equation, but it's an equation, and, it has a, and it's defined by that equation. Now, let's say I take that quarter, and I put it in my other hand, my left hand. That's not the same quarter. And you say, what are you talking about, Courtney? Are you serious? I saw you. You took it. You took it from your right hand, and you put it in your left hand. It's the same thing. You're not a magician. It's the same one. No. That has a different equation now in the left hand. It has a different a different measure for time in it, and it has a different measure for space. It's in a different hand. It literally is a different equation. That means it is literally a different quarter. Then you say, well, why, what happened to the first quarter? And I said, that's exactly the point. The first quarter has a different equation. If you set the equation to what you want to see, you'll see the first quarter. If you set the equation to what you want to see, you'll see the second quarter. What you see depends on the equation, and the equation just has numbers in it. That means that the first quarter in the first hand still exists, and the second quarter, or the same quarter, but you moved it to the second hand that has a new equation in it, that also still exists. But they don't seem to exist at the same time. So one is hidden from the other. What this basically means is that this idea of a single reality, a single photon, popping out of a wave packet is sort of a religious idea that was started back in the early quantum mechanics that sort of invaded our way of thinking of physics. Meaning, there's no reason to actually conclude that. And Hugh Everett, in 1957, actually he said this quite bluntly when he was talking with another famous physicist, Bryce DeWitt, he said it's a monstrosity to actually come up with this, this idea that only one reality pops out. You could have them all pop out. The real thing, and another physicist, for example, debating his, his uh, graduate students, when the graduate students were saying, 
But look, the quantum mechanical world basically says we're all we're all wave packets. That means we're just probability things. We don't really exist. And then he stubbed, the physicist stubbed his toe and he yelled at his graduate students and said, stop, don't do that. We know that we exist because that hurt. That was his, that was the way of judging it. And you see, he was looking at his own experiential way of looking at things and saying, because I experienced it, that's the way it works. And now, Hugh Everett, actually, in discussing things with Bryce DeWitt, he said, that's a really stupid argument. Because that's the same argument they made in Copernicus's day. Copernicus said, no, you see, it's, it's, you got it wrong. Earth is not in the center and all those things swarming around Earth, the sun and all the other planets are revolving around the Earth and the stars. Rather, it's the sun that's in the center and the Earth is revolving around the sun. And the people of his day said, that's so stupid, are you serious? Give me a break, Copernicus. Just look up in the sky, you jerk. In the morning, the sun is over there, and it, in the evening, it crosses the whole sky, and it's, it's obviously moving. I mean, like, wake up. Are you an idiot or what? Look at the stars. They're moving every single night. They go from one spot to the next. They're obviously moving. I'm not moving. You see anything on this earth moving? We're not moving. Are you serious? Just like, so stop being so stupid. If we were moving, we'd be flying all over the place. It's obviously the sun and the planets that are moving. Now, that was before Newton, before the whole concept that all of, all of classical physics, all of classical physics, all of Newtonian physics is based on the equation force equals mass times acceleration. Everything can be derived from that. Everything that Newton ever did can be derived in terms of physics from that equation. You really can't... There are people that manipulate force equals mass times acceleration, but you're, it's really almost positive it's... It's not, you really don't derive it beyond that. And so, but all of the rest of physics, from all of the velocity equations and everything, distance equations, they all come out of that. So, the basic idea is that none of that was known in Copernicus's day. They didn't understand the idea that we would be in a system that was, in, that was moving and that we would not feel the movement. And that they didn't understand the nature of orbits and all, and all that stuff. So, what we're saying is when you're looking at anything that you're personally experiencing and saying, no, oh, it's true because I see it. I'm real because I feel this pain on my toe. Bryce DeWitt was saying, you're making the same mistake people back in Copernicus's day. You're looking at your experience and saying, the superficial interpretation is correct because I just see it in front of us. So, what Hugh Everett was arguing is that all these other worlds could exist simultaneously. That also means that the past and the present and the future can exist simultaneously, but you would not see it. You see, for this wave packet to exist, all those waves have to be in sync. Now, you could have another wave packet over here. You see? Now, this wave packet over here is not messing with this one because they're separated. The wave characteristics, this is also made up of a bunch of component waves. And then this wave packet over here is made up of a bunch of component waves. But they're not mixing very much. So this wave packet looks sort of separate from that wave packet. In order for them to hit each other, to meet, to interact, you've got to actually merge them. You've got to line them up. And that's exactly the same thing you do when you go to a radio. In the old radio days. These days you just listen to it on the... On the uh, on the computer, but in the old days they had a radio 
and a dial. And your radio dialed in to a particular reality, a station that was broadcasting. And you didn't hear the other stations because the radio acted as a screening device that screened out all the other frequencies to allow you to focus on only one. But the other frequencies, the other stations, were still there. You just didn't see them. So the reality is, this wave packet is not seeing this wave packet simply because the frequencies are out of sync. You bring the frequencies into sync and they start reacting to it. That means that in a sense, in a very real sense, and many physicists are arguing this now, that our brains are actually very sophisticated hologram generators. Everyone get that? Hologram is like a 3D image that you see in front of you. That our brains actually have evolved into devices that screen out all the other frequencies so that you only see the one where I'm standing here in front of you with a jacket on. You're there with that color shirt. You're not seeing all the others. On an evolutionary basis, that's understandable because if you're there out in the wilderness, you need to see the lion that's in front of you today. You do not need to see the gazelle that was there yesterday, and you don't need to see the elephant that'll be there tomorrow. If you're going to survive, you need to see the lion that's there today. You need everything else screened out. And the brains have become really good at it, really, really good at it, making the illusion of a single reality very, very real. So real that physicists say, it's real because my foot hurts. And Hugh Everett saying, that is so stupid. Do you get the idea? Now, so many physicists laughed at Hugh Everett really awfully. In 1957, he left in disgust. He left the entire physics community and went into the Defense Department, where he was one of the fundamental creators of the principle of MAD, which is mutually assured destruction, which is actually a good thing. Have I ever mentioned that? I don't think so. I did mention it. Well, Hugh Everett, you see, Back in those days, during the Cold War days, there actually were both civilian and military people that were arguing in favor of, in favor of a first strike. That means we were, they were actually arguing, literally arguing, that, they should, that we should launch our nuclear missiles against the Soviet Union and China to knock them out now so that we don't have to deal with them later. That was the basic idea that Patton had using conventional forces back in World War II. Eisenhower had... Germany in World War II. Don't touch this because it'll wreck the back. Eisenhower had to pull him out of Germany in World War II because he was arguing after the completion of World War II to keep on going and to go into the Soviet Union. The same way, the same way that Germany had done, the same way that Napoleon had done with French forces. To come, they, he said, we're going to have to deal with them sooner or later. Well, let's do it now where you got the troops in place. And Eisenhower said, he's mad. He's just crazy. Pull him out of there. So they had the, that's how the, that's, that, how, that's the, that was the end of Patton. So, but mutually assured destruction was saying, no, if you launch our nuclear weapons against Soviet Union and China, it will produce such a huge level of disaster that we will die too. There will be no survivors. We will all be gone. So Hugh Everett was the one who helped design, he was a fundamental creator of this, of let them build their nuclear weapons and point them at us, and we will build our nuclear weapons and point them at them, and nobody will shoot. Because if anybody shoots, everybody dies. That was mutually assured destruction. That's what happened to Hugh Everett when he was laughed out of the, uh, uh, laughed out of the physics community. 
But uh, it's approximately 18% of physicists, usually younger ones, have actually adopted Hugh Herbert's idea. And it's called the other world's interpretation. Now, what it basically means is, with this two-slit experiment, and of course, the, there's 82% of physicists that still think it's rubbish. So I'm not trying to argue one way or the other, but I am saying that there's been a shift since 1957, and the ones who are still saying it's rubbish, their average age is a bit older than the ones who are saying it's actually good. And BBC actually had a marvelous documentary on Hugh Everett, literally describing all of that. Okay, so what we have here is a two-slit experiment where the monochromatic light source is coming here, going through the aperture, letting photons go through here into the system. Now, the photons run into two slits, two small little slits. Now, if there's a lot of photons that are going through these slits, you're going to have two two beams of photons coming out of here. Does everyone see? Actually, I should make this a little bit, just to make it sort of clear. You'll have two beams of photons coming out of here. Now, if you have two beams of photons coming out of there, they're going to spread out. And what happens when the two beams interact with each other? You're going to get destructive and constructive interference. And what are you going to get on this photographic plate? You're going to get what they call an interference pattern. So if you look at this on the surface, what you'll get on this photographic plate will be something that sort of looks like this. Sort of looks like Venetian blinds where you get dark areas and bright areas, dark areas and bright areas. And the dark areas where the two beams canceled each other out, no light got through. Light areas where they were hitting each other, the peaks and they were hitting each other, and they amplified, they summed together. So this is called the classic interference pattern. Now here's the two-slit experiment. What happens if you do two things? You reduce the monochromatic light source so that you're only emitting a very small amount of light. And you reduce the aperture here so that you're only letting in to the system a very small amount of light. So that you have in the system only one photon at a time. Does everyone understand? You're going to reduce the amount of light and reduce the aperture so that only one little guy can get through at a time. Everyone has to understand at this point. This is very important. Inside here, you're not going to have a lot of photons streaming in that can cause that interference pattern. You're going to have one. Everyone okay? One photon. This photon is going to hit this barrier here with the two slits, and it's going to have to go through one of those two slits. It's one photon, right? It's got to go through the two. It's got. It's got to go through this slit or that slit. Hey, there's only two. And so what's going to happen is, it's going to produce a dot on the photographic surface, on the light detection plate, because one photon went through. And it produces a bing, a dent right there. Then let's let another photon through. The one photon, this one goes through that little spot on the average, on the, uh, and the two slits goes through the second spot, and it goes bing, and it hits it there. So you have two dots, two photons. Okay, let's let another one go through. And another one photon goes through, and it once goes through one of the slits, and then, bing, makes a dot there. Well, what if you sit around for a long, 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 
long time. And so that one photon at a time is going through, but you let a whole bunch of them in because you waited a long time. But at any one time, there was only one photon in there at the time. What happens? You get the same blankety-blank interference pattern. Now, let me ask you, this is the big Coupe de Gracie, uh, to quote Johnny Bravo. If there's only one photon in the system in the, in the system at a time, what the heck is it interfering with? There's only one. In order to create an interference pattern, you have to have multiple photons existing as waves interfering with each other through constructive and destructive interference. But there is only one photon. There's only one. There's nothing it's interfering with. How can you get an interference pattern? But the interference pattern is always there. And it's replicated time after time. Many mainstream physicists to this day say it's one of the great mysteries of life. Still. And the younger physicists are saying it's not a mystery anymore. It was figured out in 1957 by Hugh Everett. That's what's going on in the physics community right now. A lot of these debates you don't get in your physics classes, which is a real shame. Because these debates behind closed doors and their meetings are, you know, bloodletting events. I mean, they fight. And what is actually happening is Hugh Everett is saying, when the photon exists inside the system, it's existing in its probabilistic state, in its many realms. And it's interfering with its other versions of itself. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> he said it's interfering with its other versions of itself, which is exactly what I was talking about here, where you had a different shirt on. Okay? Well, it's interfering with its other versions of itself, and thus it's having destructive and, and, and constructive interference with its other versions of itself. Does everyone get that? And so when you get it hitting the detection plate, it's producing an interference pattern one photon at a time. <coughs> And so many mainstream physicists simply say it's a mystery, and other ones are saying it's not a mystery anymore. There are other worlds, other realms. Now, it basically goes like this. If we are a frequency-based universe, that means there is no such thing as matter. And physicists who like to say, like the guy who stubbed his toe and said it's hurt, that's why I know I'm real, physicists who like to say, look at all this mass, look at this, we know what mass is. Other physicists will come across and say, well, actually, to be quite honest, uh, we measure mass, but we've never actually seen it. What do you mean we've never seen a mass? What's this table made out of? Well, the reality is, if you take that table and burrow into it, you'll see a lot of empty space until you finally get the molecules. And then you go into the molecules, there's empty space until you finally get to the atoms. Then you go into the atoms, and there's empty space until you finally get to the subatomic particles. Then you start breaking the subatomic particles. The reality is that no physicist has ever, ever, ever found anything solid, ever. Never. They've never found a solid anything. The only thing they find is frequencies. That's it. Now, there still are some physicists who are looking for solid billiard ball type particles. Those are called particleists. And they're a dying breed. They're like the dinosaurs. They're going, out, they're going extinct. Maybe those physicists almost don't exist anymore. But they, they essentially have never found a solid billiard ball type anything. Never. That means we're all nothing but frequencies. Now you can say, but we look so real. Okay, look, you're used to this, your smartphones and your computers. Okay, that's fine. 
put yourself 10 years into the future and come back and teach this class. You, get your, you graduate, you get your PhD, you start teaching at a university and you're teaching science fiction and politics and you get to a, this lecture you want to give. What are those kids going to be watching? You think they're going to be watching five panel TVs that you think are so cool? They'll have 3D TVs. You'll have Han Solo, Princess Leia, and Luke Skywalker alive in front of their, right in the center of their living room, walking around. And if you were to walk in, time travel and go into the future and see what your kids or what your students are watching, you'd say, my gosh, what is Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia doing in the middle of your living room? And the kids would laugh at you and they'd say, that's just a bunch of frequencies. It's a hologram, it's not real. And you'd say, the heck, it's not real. I'm looking at them. They're solid as me. Do you get the idea? So, what basically this other world's interpretation is. Did you want to say that? Yeah, I just have a question. Go ahead. Um, you said that it's all made up of frequencies and that almost like projections. Then is there not a way? And you said that our brain controls said projections or... That's the theory. The it doesn't control. It, it controls what you're perceiving. So if, there, if that was a thing, would there not be a way to rewire or to perceive things exactly. differently? Should there then be a way to see these other realities? That's the big million dollar question that people are asking. If everything's a frequency based thing, well just like you tune a radio, we should be able to build devices that can see these other realms. That's the whole idea. Like simulated brains? Because you said that our What's that? Well, you said that our brains were like the... Um, the brains are, are, are what they're, they're like a radio receiver, and, right. they're, and their central purpose is just to screen out other frequencies. Go ahead. So, if you're talking about another way to see the other frequencies, you'd have to build like a, an artificial brain, I guess? You'd have to build some type of device that could do it, that could pick up other frequencies, tune into other things. Now, that's the theory. I'm not saying I'm not arguing one way or the other. I'm just giving you the theory so we can match it up with John Scalzi's red shirts because it is a theory that some physicists actually talk about, and it does match exactly what's in the novel. So that you don't have to. And I'm not saying that John Scalzi's buying into this. I'm just saying that there is a realm of physics where these things are talked about. So I don't want you to dismiss the story that John Scalzi writes just because you say it's impossible. I want you to realize that there is discussions about whether this thing is possible. Because the two-slit experiment is really a puzzle. And for those physicists that say, no, there's only one reality, and we got mass and everything's there, they, when they come to this two-slit experiment, which they know very well, their answer is, and we don't understand that. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that this reality that we see in front of us is not real. You get it? So they have something that they really don't understand, and they're a belief of faith. But I'm going to believe in this reality as being the only one. Hugh Everett came along and said, forget the leap of faith. There's nothing in the... And no one's challenged Hugh Everett's math, mathematics. I mean, I'm a mathematician. His math is beautiful. Even Bryce DeWitt, back in the old days, in, in the 1950s, he didn't challenge the math. It's the interpretation of the quantum mechanics that is challenged, not the math. So Hugh Everett is basically saying, in a probabilistic world, all these things just manifest because you put yourself in sync with a particular reality. Meaning, the wave packets of you match up with the wave packet of the photon you see. The wave packet of you simply doesn't match up with the photon you don't see. But another version of you with slightly different wave configuration 
will match up with that other photon. And that version of you won't see you because you're out of sync. And you don't have to worry about all this energy that's created to create all this mass. Because there is no mass. All there is is a frequency-based universe. You get the idea? All you're seeing is pictures. And there actually are physicists to this day, very cutting-edge ones, that are actually trying to detect these alternate realities. And they're actually trying to detect whether this existence that we have today is a hologram. That's, that's being done at the very highest levels of physics right now. There are, actually, there are some very serious people trying to detect if this, in fact, is just a moving picture show. Isn't that interesting? Now let's go to the novel. Okay? So, now John Scalzi's. Let's take a look, and I'd like you to all turn to the following pages. This is on red shirts. I'm turning to page 138. Now, I'm going to start in the sort of near the top, not at the exact top. They're talking about the possibility that there could be a science fiction show that's actually operating and somehow there is a bleed through between the two realities and that they are connecting. And thus, whatever happens in that show is affecting what's happening in this real and the reality that they're having here. Well, you see, if everything is a frequency-based something, one of the farthest out conclusions that you can draw from this is that it is impossible to think of something that does not exist. Meaning everything can exist. If, if we have a frequency-based universe, literally everything can happen. Because different combinations of frequencies will produce literally any possibility that can occur. And if you can think about it, you're putting your mind, in essence, in sync with that possibility. So, according to that level of the theory, this is the, this is the farthest out fringe element of this basic stuff that we've been talking about. That anything that you can think about, you, that in essence you cannot think about something that does not exist in some way. That's the farthest out sort of conclusion. That means that if you can think about a television show in the past where something's going on, it may not be in your past. You cannot see your past. It seems invisible, like it's gone. But the reality is, time has changed. Just like the quarter moved from one hand to the next and it had a different equation. Well, time was different. So the first quarter that was in the right hand was invisible to the second quarter that was in the left hand. That would mean your past you can't see anymore because the equation for your past has changed. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore. If you had a machine that could dial in that exact equation of you yesterday, you could see yourself. That's according to the theory. Again, I'm not arguing for the theory one way or the other. I'm just saying that this is, a, in essence, an interpretation of mainstream physics that is that makes sense with this novel. So let's go to page 138. And they're talking about this Star Trek thing that did exist in their timeline, in their past. 
Okay, and so on one party, I'll start at the top. Star Trek was a very successful was very successful in its time, Hanson said. So someone else came along and just reused the basic ideas. It worked because it worked before. People would still be entertained by the same stuff, more or less. Well, did you find our show in your research? Dahl asks, and then the protagonist for this novel, of course, is Andrew Dahl. And he says, no, but I didn't think I would. When you create a science fiction show, you create a new fictional timeline, which starts just before the production date of that television show. That show's past doesn't include the television show itself. And then Duval says, because that would be recursive and meta. And then Hansen continues, yes, but I don't think they thought about it that hard. They just wanted the shows to be realistic in their own context. And you can't be realistic if there's a television version, a television show version of you in your own past. Now, I'm going to skip the page to the next page, 139, and sort of continue where they're talking about the possibility of these timelines in the middle of the page on page 139. Jimmy, you said that whenever the show started, it created a new timeline. Dahl said and ignored Hester, throwing up his hands helplessly. Do we know when that happened? Then Hansen said, you think that might help us? And then Dahl continued, I'm just curious. We're an we are an alternate timeline from reality, whatever that is. I'd like to know when that branching off happened. Now notice the language he's using, branching off. That's the exact language that Hugh Everett used to use. That at every moment of the now, you have a branching off into alternate futures, alternate timelines. It happens like now. From that point where I said that, different versions emerge. Where I'm not talking about the words that you're hearing now, I'm saying some other words. Does it make sense? And then now, it's another version. From that point on, different versions. Every single moment has alternate realities just sort of bursting out. And you don't see them because on a frequency level, they're out of... Out of, out of sync. That's what the branching off concept is all about. All right. So I'd like to know when that branching off happened, Dahl said. I don't think we can know, Hansen said. There's nothing that would signal where that timeline twist happened because from our perspective, there's never been a break. We don't have any alternate timelines to compare ourselves to. We only have our timeline. Look, according to this theory... There is a version of the 20th century in which World War II and all the major wars of the 20th century simply did not happen. Peaceful century. And there's another version where nuclear war is the way World War II ended. Remember, Germany was very close to just a couple months away from getting an operational bomb. So we have nuclear destruction in one reality and no major wars in another reality. According to the theory, all of that could have happened and all of that would have happened. If you can think of it, it happened in some version. But you can't see it because it's out of sync, because of the branching off. So what we have here is that the, the people in this novel are wondering if some reality that branched off someplace and wasn't part of theirs, somehow was starting to leak into theirs. 
they're starting to realize that there's no essential difference between their reality and the others, other than the fact that somehow what's happening in the other reality is affecting their reality. <coughs> somehow they got hooked together. And in fact, there are realms of physics that actually could be tied together, especially in a science fiction novel, that could tie together one reality with another so that such things could happen. And that's dealing with the idea of entanglement, which Einstein called spooky action at a distance, where you can have one particle on one side of the galaxy instantaneously affect another particle on another side of the galaxy in total violation of the speed limitations of light. That's not in dispute. Okay, that you can have that instantaneous spooky action at a distance. Well, if you aggregate it up to a macro realm, there could be some entanglement between two realities so that something that happens in one reality will affect something that happens in another reality. Does it make sense? Meaning there are levels of physics and you could build a science fiction novel on this. Now, I want to ask, let's pause here before I go into a few more things. And I want to ask, how do you think this could possibly affect, in a science fiction sense, politics and society? Because this is a science fiction and politics course. Let's assume we make a leap of faith here and make an assumption that maybe it's possible. We don't have to conclude whether it is possible. And I'm, not, I'm certainly not asking you to run out to the physics department and say that Courtney Brown taught you new revolutionary physics and this is the way the world is. No, no, no. I'm not asking you to buy into anything. I'm asking you to entertain possibilities because that's where genius starts. You entertain possibilities that other people just dismiss. That's a genius. The genius is the person who will be willing to allow her or his mind to entertain possibilities. So, Audrey... What do you think might be some way to connect what we've been talking about now, these alternate realities, to society and maybe even politics? So, like, the fact that there are a lot of different realities, the fact that there are a lot of different realities and how that connects to politics. But how would it affect society and politics? Yes. Different realities. Um, it could bring about a lot of different um, outcomes. And how would that be relevant to us? Um, I feel like that um, they don't matter. Like if uh, we know about a certain reality because then we when because there is like no way for us to know so like even if we like are on the lookout for a certain like result or something we can never like understand it mm -hmm. so um even like for us to even try to find out about something that wouldn't like matter in the end actually you're raising a really good point something that we raised with respect to ursula Le Guin's novels. Remember we talked about Ursula Le Guin novels as thought experiments? Yeah. What would happen if you had a unisexual world? A world in which everybody could be either gender? Wondering what kind of society that would happen? 
what would emerge from that society? Would you have a lack of competition? All that testosterone thrown out, and that sort of the male-dominated fighting response would go away. Would you have a peaceful society? She was going through a thought experiment. So what if you have multiple realities? And we say, just this is what Hugh Everett was saying. You have multiple versions of all of those things that are as real as the one that you see. They are not worse. Go ahead. I just had a thought. Like Hypothetically, if you had a device that would allow you to go from reality to reality, couldn't you always just be switching from one reality to the other to get the best possible result you want? Now you're talking about navigating the future, avoiding realities that you don't want. If you could see what was going on in the future, you could say, I don't want to go there. But what about the past? Go ahead. Um... Have you ever seen the movie Donnie Darko? Because we're basically describing the plot of Donnie Darko. Which one? Donnie Darko, the movie. Go ahead. Um, well, the movie, like the main, the central theme of the movie uh, concerns multiple realities. And uh, the storyline starts off with like this kind of troubled, I don't, I'm not going to explain the whole film, but it basically starts off with this main plot and then he reaches a fork in the road and then the realities of the movie split. And uh, both realities work. At, it's, it's really complicated. Both realities uh, exist at the same time, and uh, there's a visitor from one reality to the other that visits visits the kid, and he kind of figures out that this go, this is going on, and then he has the choice to choose which reality um, that can actually exist in order to reach a specific outcome. And then I don't know. I think it's just it's exactly it's exactly what we're talking about. Just in yeah, it's just an example of it. Actually, there's a, there's another movie. Um, I don't think it's the same with you. You're not talking about that. It's another movie that is starring. Um, oh, what's his name? I forget the actual name of the novel, and I'm forget, I mean the name of the movie, and I'm forgetting. But it came out recently last year. Um, uh, oh, I mean, I can picture it in my mind right now. It had. Two guys, an older guy, you'll remember it. There's an older version of yourself and a younger version of yourself. And the older version was sent back in time. Oh, it's one with Bruce Willis. Was it? It's one with Bruce Willis. Uh, Bruce, yes, with Bruce Willis. Yeah, what was the name of the novel? Looper. Looper, that's exactly right. Okay, so that was, and literally they were talking about creating these alternate realities along that line. Yeah. Well, if Ursula Le Guin did a thought experiment trying to figure out, using science fiction as a way to try to figure out what kind of reality, what a reality would look like if it had these certain characteristics where the dual genders went away and you had one gender, would you have a more peaceful society experimenting with that? Well, isn't that sort of what you can do? if there were multiple versions of reality, if you had technology that could look at them, you'd have the same type of thought experiment. Now, you're talking about it in terms of seeing the future. But what if you wanted to see, like, this is what got us to where we are today, our past. What if something in our past had changed? Where would we be today? What about the World War II that ended with nuclear destruction? What would that have... So if you think of those two things, one version of the 20th century where no major wars happened and one version of the 20th century where nuclear destruction ended World War II, we're sort of in the middle between those two. That tension. We risked nuclear destruction, but it never really happened. And we had the wars, but it never got out of hand to the point of nuclear destruction. 
So, in a sense, the possibility of real thought experiments actually exists. Where all these things actually do happen, we just haven't seen it. And then the other possibility is, if everything that you think about, just by the fact that you're putting your mind into sync with... If everything, can, if everything possible can happen, then if you can think about it, it has happened. So in reality, everything you're thinking about is actually a real thought experiment, according to that level of physics. You see how complicated this is? The weirdest thing is that there are some physicists who are actually debating these issues, and they have been worried about it going back way over 100 years. As soon as quantum mechanics sort of emerged, these questions started. They were ridiculed at first, where the dominant theories, especially the Copenhagen interpretation, were driven politically to being the ones that were accepted. But eventually, they were being challenged. And now a whole bunch of younger physicists are saying they're wrong. And I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying, isn't it interesting that there are theories about this stuff. Okay, now let's look at the next passage I'm going to read for you. Now what I am going to ask you to do is to come in next class with a passage and an article. This is a more challenging novel, which is why I put it at the end, because that's why I'm that's why I'm spending so much time talking of these theories. Because sort of it looks like a joke novel, comic novel, but it won the Hugo Award, and it is a really great novel, and it actually is talking about very relevant, very real theories. The big difference between it is it's doing it sort of tongue-in-cheek, whereas all the other authors were always having serious overtones, <laughs> somber overtones, especially this dystopian novels and things like that. All right, let's go over to page 142 and 143. Now, again, the realities normally don't interfere with one another, but look at the blankety-blank two-slit experiment. According to the two-slit experiment, if you macro-size that out, they do interfere with one another. There's an interference pattern. So the novel is basically saying the interference can actually be significant to the point where people die. Isn't that interesting? That's what the basic macro-scale of, of these thoughts are. That one, that one, one version of reality isn't necessarily completely separate from and can't influence another version of reality. Because here we have a two-slit experiment where it's happening in front of our very eyes and we have, and that two-slit experiment has been replicated so many times. Every first-year graduate student in physics does that experiment in the lab. Every single one. That's, that is not an experiment that is in dispute. If you, get a, if you get into graduate school in physics, you will do that experiment first year. So it's not in dispute. If they're interfering with one another, and we are aggregations of those particles, then <laughs> are we interfering with other versions of ourselves? It's a serious question. Interesting. Okay, so let's go over to page 142 and 143. So, if the show just has them wandering about, wandering around a pastime, if they meet someone famous, it's the past, but if they don't, it's the present, Duval said. They're present. Then Jenkins, who is that guy who has a lot of hair, who's hiding in, one in, in the tubes of the spaceship, more or less, well, 
that's some great show trivia, Duval said, but what does this have to do with us? Then Dahl said, if we go back to the present, we can find a way to stop it. Meaning, if you go back to the point where the branching started, we can find a way to stop it because that, that reality is overlapping into our reality too much and causing us to have problems. So if we can stop that reality, but we've got to go back to where it started. Now, mind you, in their past, they don't have a show that involves the intrepid. That's the problem. So they've got to go back to the reality where the show emerged, the intrepid show emerged. That's not in their time stream. Does that make sense? Does everybody make, does that, everyone get it? They have to go back to a point where their reality branched off and another reality branched off that had an intrepid show, but their reality didn't have an intrepid show. They've got to go to the point where the intrepid show started. That's where they're branching off, because that's the reality that's interfering with theirs. Okay. Jenkins smiled and touched his nose. Duval looked at the two of them, not quite getting it. Explain this to me, Andy, she said, because right now it just looks like you and Jenkins are sharing a crazy moment. No, this makes sense, Dahl said. We know when the present is for the show. We know how to time travel to get back to the show's present. We go back to the present, we can stop the people who are making the show. Then Hester says, if we stop the show, then everything stops. No, Dahl says. When the narrative doesn't need us, we still exist. And this timeline existed before the narrative started, intruding on it. He paused and turned to Jenkins, right? Maybe, Jenkins said. Meaning, this timeline and the alternate timeline that has the Intrepid show existed. It didn't branch off and become separate until the Intrepid show started. There's actually an interesting philosophical argument about whether this timeline exists independently and the narrative accesses it, or whether the creation of the narrative also created this timeline. Does everyone get the idea? According to this theory, the far reaches of this theory, anything you think about actually exists. So if you think about a story in some version of reality, that story actually happens. Does that make sense? That, that if an, in a universe that's totally frequency-based, literally everything happens. Okay. There's actually an interesting philosophical argument about whether this timeline exists independently and the narrative accesses it, or whether the creation of the narrative also creates this timeline, causing its history to appear instantly, even if to us on the inside it appears that the passage of time has actually occurred, Jenkins said. It's very much a corollary to the strong anthropic principle. And then Jenkins continued, but we can talk about that some other time. The point is, yes, whether it existed before the narrative or is created by it, this time now, this timeline now exposed, now, now exists and is persistent even when the narrative does not impose itself. You know what that means? That means that once a timeline starts, you can't pull it back. Once the energy is released to create a new timeline, it's done, it's gone. Imagine yourself at a street corner where there's three different roads you could go. You go left, you could go straight, or go right, okay? And you say to yourself, you've all had this experience, right? What would happen if I went left? 
Hmm. And you imagine in your mind what would happen. Uh, I probably that would probably get me somewhere. But imagine what happens if I go straight, and you think about what will happen because you're trying to figure out what's the best route to take. And then you say, what would happen if I go right? Well, imagining each one of those things, according to the theory, actually creates those things. It actually sets off those timelines. And now you say, okay, now I'm going to go the middle one, I'm going to go straight. Well, according to the theory, just thinking about it at the intersection actually caused you to go off in all three directions. That you pick one doesn't mean that the other ones don't exist. Once you think about it, you cannot retract the energy. That's according to the theory. Once you project it in your mind, you put your state in a, you put your mind, your observational mind, in a state of sync, synchrony, with energy that sort of creates that timeline. And in fact, it begins. And then once you start it, it never can be withdrawn. That's according to the theory. Go ahead. Um, with all of these different frequencies and things starting, like say, I think of a, a different way reality could happen, and you think of a different way reality could happen, wouldn't there be billions upon trillions of different realities happening? More than that. So you would have to, if there was said time machine invented that allowed you to plug in the equations to where you wanted to visit, you'd have to find your specific equation to go back to... Exactly. But then, at the same time, you wouldn't just be changing your equation, you would be changing other people's that you then interfere upon when you travel back. There is no sacredness to a timeline. The old science fiction story is, I'm going to go back in time, but I can't mess with anything, otherwise I'll cease to exist. You know, I'll, I'll end up killing my grandfather. <laughs> you can't stop, that there must be only one timeline. That's the old science fiction story. But the new science fiction story is, now, as soon as you go back in time, your timeline ends, your timeline has a loop now, and you're creating a brand new timeline. Your old timeline is fine, but you're, you can't destroy a timeline. See, that's the idea about the, you can't withdraw energy. You can't destroy a timeline. The science fiction idea is based, the science fiction idea of not wanting to interfere with a timeline is based on the idea that there's something sacred about a particular timeline. That there's only one. The new interpretation is there's an infinite number. doesn't matter what you do with these timelines. Screw it around with it as much as you want. It's okay. There's no such thing as preserving the one. That's a, it's a real difference in, in thinking. But that's what this novel is based on. And the question they're raising now is, did the narrative create the timeline that's in the future that's having the problems with the people dying? Or did it happen independently and they just get linked up somehow? <laughs> and the question is, we don't really know what. We don't really know. But there are people thinking about that. Okay, you had your hand raised, Kyla? Oh, I was just going to say, there's a TV show called Fringe. Yes, Fringe. That's yeah. a great TV show. Yeah. We're the only the bad, th season. the only thing that's bad about that, and it's really a bad part of the whole thing, is it ended. Yes. I mean, it was such a great show, uh, but yes. Yeah, but the last season, they they have to go back and repair like some random event that screwed up the timeline that altered human history. Yes, as uh, as one of the observers said, yeah. they are trying to reset time, and then that would have meant that the observers would no longer have existed and things like that. It's a very interesting whole set of ideas. Um, 
Anyway, so let me let me before I, I I have one more passage I wanted to read, but we're running out of time. So at this point, I'd like to be quiet. This is one of our most interesting novels, believe it or not. I kept it off to the end precisely because it's so it's so seductive and so deceptive. It looks like it's a, a flip-off novel, just something to flip off, just to dismiss, because it's so funny. It's like a joke novel. But the reality is, it is one of the most profound novels in our whole collection. So it's really a very interesting idea of going back and... Uh, anyway, so... I would like at this point, in the two minutes that are remaining, to stretch your creativity. Think of the wildest and weirdest, and I mean this, wildest and weirdest implications that this could mean with respect to our study of societies and politics. And what I'm asking you is don't try to be tame. Try to say the stupidest, craziest, nuttiest thing that you can think of. We got two minutes. Who's going to do this? I've already picked on Audrey. Who's going to do it? Okay. No, no. Someone, else, someone else can go first. What's that? Someone else has to go first. I have to refine the stupid. You want someone else to do it first? Yeah. Okay. Who's going to do it? Two minutes. The only requirement is it be absolutely crazy. Just like Jenkins said. Jenkins was trying to convince the others that this is what's going on, but you have to believe me. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be stupid. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be nutty. It just fits. So Scalzi is actually saying that in order to understand this type of physics, you have to be willing to entertain the idea that it's totally nuts. Give it a shot. Go ahead. Um, okay. I don't know. Where, I have no idea where with this. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Somebody pick something. So go ahead. Oh, you, were you going to say something? You said you... you I, I just go into, I was just thinking about like I'm looking into this now and like um, don't read just speak okay the different things like creating like a tangent universe like a specific and this looks like a secondary a secondary like possibility of events and stuff like that um, and then it spoke about like an artifact that can come from the tangent universe mm-hmm. and then it can like randomly appear appear in actual reality and then I was like thinking how okay, that could how would this affect though let's stick to the question how would this affect our study of politics and society well I, I think like I was saying like an artifact could be a, like an unexplained object that could have either disappeared in our supposed reality like that plane that went missing. Okay, but that still doesn't address the how, question of how that would affect our interpretation of politics and society. Go ahead. Did you want to give it a shot? How it can affect our politics? Yeah. How would these ideas affect our study of politics and society? I mean, what if someone has already reached the future and has come back to a okay. politics or society? All right. So if there was some means of, of, of peeking to see what would happen, the transfer of information... Go ahead, something more. Go ahead. Um, if what you said about timelines of not being secret is true, um, and like there is like work being done on making one of these devices where you can like go to another reality, what's to stop someone who like wants to become like domin- domineer of the universe, like erasing anyone who would like? Okay. All them? right. All right. Go ahead. Um, if government 
Um, instead of government, then physicists could hold the key to our, the order of the society or whatever, so they would be the ones that can control every single person's reality to whatever they want it to be. And that's pretty interesting, yeah. That's true, that's true. Okay, look, we ran out of time, so let me ask you the following. Just let me pose it in the following way. <coughs> what classes do you have to take here at Emory? You have to take, like, history classes, right? According to this theory, why are you studying only that one version? As if that's the only one that could have happened. Why are you spending that enormous amount of time studying how Napoleon did whatever? As if there's only one thing. Do you, remember, do you realize how many history books are written discussing that one version? What about other versions that are equally real? Why are all of the resources of universities all over the planet focusing on just one version, as if that's the only version that could exist? Like, got the three first. Is that rhetorical or should I answer? I'm saying it's a question. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so, well, if this is the only reality that exists, well, then we have no real uh, reason to study hypothetical realities. And if this is just one out of an infinite or nearly infinite number of realities that could possibly exist, we can only see one. We can't see the others, so there's no point in studying it. But what if technology is the only thing that's stopping us from seeing the others? Well, but think about it. If you have a camera and you take a picture of something, you're not seeing every universe stacked on top of each other right there. You're only seeing... But the point is, what is special then about ours, other than the fact that it's the one you saw? What is unique or better or interesting about it? Do you get the point? The point is that when you buy into the idea that there is only one of anything, that's what physicists were doing all the way through the 20th century. When you, that's why they laughed you ever out of physics. When you buy into the, uh, into the idea that there is only one, what you're really doing is saying, I'm not going to consider these other possibilities. And then you have a response to that from the science fiction community saying, if you won't let us try to figure out alternative real classes that could have happened, let's imagine those things in books and novels. So let's have experiments. But the reality is, what happens when you don't have to do that in science fiction anymore? What happens when you can dial it in? That's what John Scalzi is really talking about. What happens when you can actually not do the experiment just as a thought experiment, but actually investigate it. And then what history do you write about in your graduate in your graduate thesis? All right, everybody. Look, a passage and an article. Wednesday, be there, be square.